Connect Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, and while I am an attorney, the Buzz Off Show is not legal advice. Instead, it is a weekly look at all the buzz surrounding the Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, drones, and all the technology in between. Find us each week on America's Web Radio, Wednesdays from 2 to 3 in the afternoon. But podcasts, the Buzz Off, Lawyer Liz, available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all your favorite podcast streaming services. And so this week, we're going to take a look at all of the technology that has invaded our cars, that has invaded our uh, everything around our homes, but what happens? Do we really own it? And what has become known as hashtag right to repair that your truck in the driveway it used to be that you know back before they were all connected with all kinds of software and entertainment systems and everything integrated into the car that a car was a car that if something broke down you could repair it in the middle of your driveway almost you know putting aside the harmful and inv- impact to the environment of leaking oil, et cetera, et cetera. I have fond memories of watching my father desperately try to fix his Lotus in the driveway. And when it was finally sold, it had, quote unquote, extra pieces that were in a box in the front seat and sadly explained why it was towed away and not driven away. Similarly, my grandfather growing up, when he bought his Toyota truck that he drove forever, ever, ever, and was a testament to durability, considering that truck at different times ended up in a lake, another lake, and several ditches, but my grandfather was very proud of the fact that when he bought the car, he bought the owner's manual, and he also purchased all kinds of maintenance manuals so that you, he could perform maintenance and, for the most part, did a lot of the repairs on the car himself. Not so anymore, and thanks in part to the software and the copyright issues and, you know, the Again, automakers and not just automakers, but other manufacturers looking to maximize their profits as well as, you know, make sure that parts are current. Well, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act provides them certain protections, but Every few years, we get a list of exemptions. So we're going to speak a little bit later in the show with Scott Moulton, a computer forensics expert, on how he encounters this right to repair and where he sees that as part of his job frequently is to take things apart and conduct those evidentiary hearings and assist law enforcement and others in getting into the software pieces and the hard drives, those that hidden information within devices. Well, how do you do that if you're worried about, you know, can you repair? Can you jailbreak your iPhone? What happens if you see conducting research on a particular uh, 
in this case, uh, cars, what happens when you then you know, identify an issue? And manufacturers don't always like to hear that there is an issue with their product. And so they've taken protections. Well, there have been changes to the DMCA and the exemptions list, but more are needed. And so we'll speak with Scott a little bit later on that. Until then, we're going to go through our usual bust or must list. And to kick things off, I, I hate to say this because the book started off so good, but eventually, admittedly, spoiler alert, I became frustrated with, you know, our main character. But the circle, while becoming a bestseller from the book version, it has provided Tom Hanks with his purportedly worst movie opening ever. And so, again, I think when the hype leading up to it says that the er, equates the circle, the company, the technology giant alluded to in the movie, in the story, is Twitter, you kind of, I hope that was a marketing ploy, because it certainly wasn't the Google I imagined from reading the book with its campuses, housing, and wanting to get into every aspect of our lives. But that's okay, because I am very excited for what I'm hoping will be a big must, which is Guardians of the Galaxy. And in a unique marketing ploy there, the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 did cross-marketing with, I believe it was Doritos, but when your bag of chips includes the ability to play uh, a cassette version of the movie soundtrack. I mean, I had to tip my hat to them because suddenly I want to go buy those bags of potato chips where ordinarily they would not have been on my shopping list. But hopefully they have not taken away some of the magic from the first one because I have to admit, uh, I was excited to see what Chris Pratt was doing with Star-Lord and just the wit and the dialogue. I mean, I am Groot. But in the meantime, another bust, though, after the circle, is Oregon. Not sure what, I mean, we know what they were trying to do, is that there is a value in being able to assure citizens of Oregon that when they are utilizing the services of a quote-unquote engineer, that there is some standard, that there is some minimum safety education and training. But when a gentleman is really at the heart of it just embarrassing uh, the other engineers in your state because basically he did the math better and pointed out where there were some flaws but unfortunately for him he used the word engineer and while he was and is an engineer in Sweden he has not become so licensed in the state of Oregon to the tune of a $500 fine when reporting his research on traffic cameras well, Oregon seems a little silly that y'all are taking those extreme measures. And so he's filed suit, of course, saying it infringes upon his First Amendment rights. So we'll wait for that to play out. But for right now, it's shaping up to be a bit of a bust for the state. And speaking of busts that in this case had a much, well, 
funnier as far as social media uh, entertainment value, but unfortunately for those who are caught up in it, as one of the tweets I favorited and certainly consider a must read, find hashtag Firefest, Fire Festival, and that's fire as F-Y-R-E, but what was promised by Ja Rule and an entrepreneur, McFarland, as an unforgettable once-in-a-lifetime excursion music festival million-dollar treasure hunt with exclusive access hyped by none other than Kendall Jenner and other models and celebutants on Instagram and some of the other social media became ultimately a nightmare for those who forked over Ticket prices beginning at a thousand dollars, but upwards to one hundred to two hundred thousand dollars per ticket. Promised a weekend of glamping in well-appointed tents wouldn't even begin because when they have king-size beds and lounge areas, I don't know that it's a tent anymore. But when Concert music festival goers arrived on the island in the Bahamas that the poor Bahamas government was not expecting the onslaught. There was no infrastructure set up thanks to the concert organizers' lack of planning, lack of funding, lack of foresight. They essentially came up with a great idea and marketed it. And that was it. There was no depth to their planning. But rather than cancel it, they instead started flying people over from Miami on private uh, chartered planes, dumped them off in the middle of the island where there was their luggage arrived by shipping container and was just unceremoniously tossed into a field with no lights. There were porta potties set up. Their luxury accommodations were nothing more than a FEMA tent. I'd say that was a bust. As someone put it, Camp Krusty came to life. But in addition to the hype that social media can play, social media also fell into the next and final bust or must for this week in that officers and law enforcement were able to use a combination of social media and other interactions through a connected home and, lo and behold, a Fitbit to determine that it was not an intruder who came in and uh, murdered a man's or Richard Debat's wife. Instead, it was him that his uh, Connecticut law enforcement were able to put piece together a timeline using his wife's Fitbit, her Facebook posts, and the IP address associated with where she posted them and how she posted them. That in his case, the husband, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, was checking email from a location within the home, connecting to the home's wireless uh, Wi-Fi 
uh, network, but using all of this IoT, we've talked on the show about how IoT devices are going to rat you out. Well, in this case, it helped identify a woman's killer and put an end to that mystery. But at the same time, it's fascinating to watch how this information and all of these little data points that are being collected constantly just by being in the vicinity. In this case, they were able to identify that the garage door was opened right around the time the wife was making certain social media posts. There wasn't that panicked of the intruder holding the husband hostage, torturing him, and then taking, exacting his revenge uh, by shooting the wife instead. They're able to identify, you know, where there was activity, when she was, when there was that movement, when she was doing things based on her Fitbit. So to the extent the Fitbit served as a must for identifying her killer, of course, it's going to lead to the jokes of it was certainly a bust for the husband, uh, literally and figuratively. Well, when we come back from this commercial break, we will get into and delve into this right to repair. So from a garage door opener, solving a crime to what's in your garage and whether you can tinker with the software. But you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. So as we talked about and or spoke about in the first segment on the bust or must list, you can't talk about must these days or bus without getting into the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA. More importantly, how it is stranding farmers, tractors in the fields, how it is, you know, making criminals, penalizing your ability to mess or, you know, jailbreak your iPhone. 
up until the exceptions passed explicitly for that, but even hacking a car, fixing your car in your driveway, unless you want to go to the dealership or pay exorbitant amounts of money to them, uh, under an exception, you're breaking the DMCA. So inviting to the show today, Scott Moulton, a computer forensics expert, to discuss some of these issues. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me, Liz. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. And Scott, I'm just glad you could take a break from your conference schedule circuit and your courtroom testifying to join us. I'm happy to do it. I'm always happy to talk to you. Well, and Scott, provide, perhaps provide a little bit of an introduction to on, I mean, you're no newcomer to the game. You've been making and breaking and teaching classes on this for almost 20 years, 10? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been doing physically teaching classes on, now, my, my specialty is usually dealing with damaged media. So usually it's hard drives and equipment and things like that that we're repairing and that I wrote this class that I teach law enforcement, I teach government agencies, I teach all over the world how to fix and repair. And and we do have, you know, even when we're talking about hard drives, we do have a little bit of a same kind of situation because um, we have tools that use ROMs that come from hard drives and from computer equipment to repair computer equipment. So when we have to remove a chip to fix a hard drive, we need to get a copy of a ROM or a copy of another piece of code and put it on that drive in order to fix it. Now, we haven't had a lot of pushback in the United States because in the United States, they don't build any of the tools. All of the tools come from uh, Ukraine and Russia so, and then they're distributed through companies out of Canada. So we don't get a lot of the pushback on the Millennium side of that, but we're doing the same thing. And if somebody really got upset, we would be in the same situation these farmers are, where you know a farmer can't repair his tractor because it's no longer a physical item. It now is a chipset that has some code running on it. But you know, here's the ironic part: is that a lot of the farmers and people who are getting stuck with these, who are starting to hack their own. Uh, farm vehicles and fixing their own farm vehicles are using tools and hacker tools that are coming from Ukraine. You, Ukraine. There is a number of Ukrainian tools to take the files from your John Deere tractor, to read them, to modify them. There's, a, there's even like, you know how we had um, back in the day with pirated software, you could download a key gen tool and you could generate a, a serial number or something so that, that you know, whatever pirated piece of software that you got has this key generator as well. And that's actually the same thing with the John Deere tractor services. The uh, the Ukrainian stuff has the same kind of key generators. You check off all the boxes of what you have in your tractor, and then you check off your models and what it is, and you say generate, and it creates the, the host ID or the key gen file that goes with that. Uh, they do have other situations where they have to deal with um, an encryption process. The, the download and the utility that puts the data onto the tractor is also encrypted in some format as well. And then that is stored on the device so that no one can tell or no one can fix it themselves just by downloading the code and reading it and doing something. And, uh, and again, ironically, they cost a lot of money 
the these Ukrainian companies that are creating these tools are charging upwards of uh, $750 or something for the tools to get around this problem. So, the and fact- yet that that $750 still is cheaper in most cases than what the manufacturers themselves are charging, right? Well, well, yeah. I mean, the pro- real problem is you've got farmers whose tractor might have a problem out in the field while they're trying to, you know, get corn or take care of their field or do something. And when it breaks down, they've either got to take the tractor to a John Deere authorized service dealer or they've got to do like the old IBM way where you had to call the IBM people and eventually they send somebody out. But then you lose a day of and, – and, you know, maybe that's a lot of money. I mean, I don't know exactly how much in the farming industry, but I assume when things have to be done, you're not going to wait three days. Your crop is in the field and it needs to be done. So I assume that there's quite a bit of money that's lost not being able to harvest your your materials and do all the stuff that you're supposed to do. And, you know, equipment, farm equipment traditionally, you know, the complaint that they've been making statements about is that traditionally it's always broken down. For 100 years they've been having to deal with this, and farmers have learned to become mechanics and fix their own stuff in the field. But now they're being prevented by just a stupid a uh, piece of software slash legal issue because even if they you know pay seven hundred fifty dollars, I mean this is completely something that John Deere could have sold them the utilities to fix it and repair it themselves. Could have sold it as another kit. They could have sold you know a two thousand dollar kit to them, and they would probably buy it buying a hundred you know a hundred thousand dollar tractor or something. Well, and as you pointed out, when timing is everything, and you've got to get the crop harvested and. You don't really have an option for delays or, for example, if part of the issue is you're trying to keep the blueberry crop from freezing. So you've got blowers out there and suddenly one of the blowers has an issue. You don't have the luxury of waiting for the service rep to appear for what could be just a software glitch. Yeah. I mean, it's it's completely. I mean, I completely understand where they're coming from. It's it'd be no different than, you know, you're in the middle of a winter storm and your car broke down and you've just got to sit out there and wait till somebody comes, even if it means you're going to die. So it doesn't make much sense from a standpoint of them not being able to repair, fix, or handle their own stuff. But obviously, for John Deere, it's either you know a money issue or a dealer issue because the, the, you know this is a traditional problem that we've had in the past with certain vendors and certain dealers. You promise your dealers who are reselling your stuff that you're going to get so much business and this is how much it's going to be and if they can't service vehicles or they can't do these things and all they're doing is selling vehicles that last for you know 30 years then they're not they're not getting repeat business unless it's service well and two it's of course the lawyers who mess up everything we just get in the way and they're getting into almost esoterical uh, I I would agree with you except for one point, and that's the fact that it looks like from what John Deere has done in the tractors that, yes, some lawyer or somebody making some bean you know, counting decisions in the corner said, hey, yes, according to the laws, we have the right to do this. So they took it steps further. They encrypted things. They made it incredibly difficult to work on on purpose, and they made it so that, you know, it's not under the normal circumstance. You know, you take apart a BlackBerry phone, you can still do – 
under certain circumstances, just hooking up the chip, reading code, reading content, dealing with it. In these cases, they actually did say, oh, you know what, let's make sure that if they can take off the chip that they can't read anything or do anything with it, that we've got a key and we've got encryption to stop them from doing that on purpose. And so they didn't They didn't just say, oh, okay, you just can't fix your vehicle, and it's not just lawyers. It's now they've taken it far enough to actually build out those items to prevent it from happening. Well, absolutely. And in making the arguments in different court filings, they're trying to draw a distinction between, well, you haven't purchased that software. You've just purchased a license. So it's different from, say, a 57 Chevy where there wasn't a lot. You you, know, you could use that equipment. You could, if something broke down, yeah, you could go to a different uh, manufacturer to buy or get an off-brand part, but not so much with software. They're getting into the copyright and licensing debates. Right, correct. And that's something you've certainly had to work in in some of your uh, experience in helping courts and others define and decide what is software, what is copyrightable, and from a from the computer, from the technology standpoint. Yeah, there there is a lot of different discussions, and there is kind of a, this new pattern that's kind of showing up, which is uh, I, I do testify in court cases, and I deal with some court cases based on different things from taxes to copyright and things like that. And while you know I'm not a, a, a particular expert in any one thing, what ends up happening is I get educated in the content that I'm dealing with for these particular trials and these court cases, knowing all the skills that I have on the digital side and dealing with you know knowing how a hard drive works, knowing how everything uh, in the world of digital data actually works. So I am dealing with court cases and testified in a case in Colorado last year about what is tangible and what is intangible. And we have traditionally defined like software that you would download or get over the Internet as intangible because of the way that it's transferred and things that happen to it. But ultimately, my argument is once you've stored this data and it exists, and even while it's being transferred and things that are happening to it, the argument about tangible or intangible should be it should be different than what you actually have when you're talking about something like a patent or a copyright or an idea. Uh, an idea or a copyright, any of those items, you can't physically destroy those items, and so they are intangible. So you can't take a hammer and destroy an idea with a hammer, and so that makes it intangible. But if you have data that is stored on a disk, it is a measurable quantity, even though it is magnetic and you are changing the way that magnetic data or the atoms are basically aligning in order for you to read that content, it is a measurable item. And so therefore, it isn't intangible. I can use a hammer to destroy that item and I have actually lost something, whether it be a photo or a movie or something else. So I think that we're actually looking at the possibility here coming up in the future that tax laws will change, that the definition of computers and other things have changed. Uh, in some cases, states just decide, instead of even calling it tangible or intangible or dealing with whether or not it's a utility like electricity, we'll just make a, a, a blatant statement like the state of Washington uh, itself did where they just say we're going to tax everything. It doesn't matter if it's a program running on a computer, if it's a service that you're connecting to the computer and running it, those things are tangible in a asset 
way, and we're going to charge taxes. And so that's kind of what we're dealing here with this tractor, because they're basically saying, you don't own this thing, it doesn't exist, and this tractor, uh, no, you're only licensing the ability to use it until it no longer works, and then we own it. They're trying to draw that distinction between the physical tractor and the software and the systems that are required to run it. But you raise a very good point is some of these states are struggling with their tax code and their how they're getting revenue and how they're uh, basically filling the coffers. And yet technology isn't fitting nice and neatly into their Predefined. Uh, well, the, the the issue that has to do with that is a lot to do with the predefined laws about who gets to define what taxes are. Because certain states, like Colorado, as an example, they cannot change the statements or the law without the vote of the people. So, in other words, they they can't put on a ballot, "Hey, would you like to be charged for Netflix?" Because if you do that, they're going to say no that that should be non-taxable. So in order to get paid for those items, they can't change the law. So they have to decide how that's going to happen. Whereas the state of Washington did, basically the state of Washington is not limited by the same limitations that, say, the state of Colorado is on those types of items. So they can just blatantly stay. So we'll have to pick up the taxation of Netflix. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy, no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. So welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Catch us each Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern on AmericasWebRadio.com or catch the podcast version of the shows replayed 
on americaswebradio.com. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, any of your favorite podcast streaming services. Look for us, Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. So before the break, we were talking about how different states are approaching the the taxation of these, some of these services. The basically taxing Netflix and chill, so to speak, right. with Scott Moulton. And Scott, is this going to put a cramp? Uh, or crimp in your uh, Saturday night plans? Uh, well, if my Saturday night plans involve a motorcycle, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Do you mean Netflix and sitting around and watching ne- TV, or do you mean riding a motorcycle across the country? Well, and I cheated for the v- or for the listeners. Uh, Scott is known for taking these amazing cross-country trips on his bike, and what we were talking about during the commercial break amongst ourselves was the impact isn't just in the farming and the ag equipment. John Deere's taking center stage right now, car hacking, the you know Jeep Cherokee research that spurred spawned the DMCA exemption that was so two years ago. But where we see this as an even bigger issue is some of the non, I say non-traditional, but the two-wheeled vehicles that, you know, Harley and Indian, you were saying, Scott, have started incorporating iPad navigation systems as kind of a built-in on their bike. Yes, they. Uh, so, it, it, and this is basically a spinoff from four-wheeled vehicles. So, you know, over the years, you know, starting with that kind of idea that you know, ten years ago when they first started putting a nice dual-screen display and things like that inside your cars, if any of you bought upgrades and things like that and bought mapping systems, you soon realize that they become outdated very quickly and that your maps are useless and no longer is there updates. At some point in time, whoever your car manufacturer is isn't even keeping track after three or four or five years. It's almost like you got to buy a new vehicle in order to get a new set of maps. Otherwise, people are using like an iPhone with car uh, the car navigation stuff when you plug it in and CarPlay actually works or an Android. And now we have the same kind of thing that's just started with motorcycles. And that's kind of the big worry for me at this point is, you know, with cars it was one thing because eventually, you know, you're just using your phone and you've got something else that you can look at. But now that the middle of the display in almost all of the motorcycles now is taken over with this iPad that's in the middle that does everything. It You know, it manages the fuel consumption, manages, there's a whole lot of stuff that it manages there and i feel kind of the same way what are you know we're gonna have a motorcycle for 10 years but in six years they're not going to be updating maps and and they already charge a lot for those things as well when you're now i don't know the indian and the others these are new systems for them so they may eventually but car manufacturers were charging upwards of hundreds to thousands to update their maps in some of the more popular vehicles and i have a feeling that's where we're heading with motorcycles and their ipad display until it doesn't work until you just can't even use it. Well, that kind of goes against the whole concept of the open road, just you and your bike. And if something breaks down, no problem. You know, you'll find a dusty repair shop along Route 66 that, you know, you buy the proprietor a case of beer and he'll get your bike fixed faster. 
Well, I guarantee you, you will not find that on Route 66. I've driven yeah. the whole thing, and there's you're not getting anything fixed on Route 66, pretty much. Uh, not until Just you get to, kicks. like, L.A. or something. Yeah, right. Um, but, uh, the, yeah, and you won't see me riding around with an iPad in the middle of my screen. I mean, it's, like I want a traditional motorcycle that at least has a little bit less. My Indian does have some firmware and some things that it's tracking, and it does get difficult to deal with because there's a, in a, a book of entire codes and things like that. And But I do think we're heading around to hacking. I've hacked some of the motorcycle already. Uh, Allegedly? Rumored? Uh, yeah, well, I'll fight them if, they, if we need to have this discussion. But <laughs> nonetheless, I'm still going to, I'm going to deal with what it takes to make my motorcycle work the way I want it to work. And the, right now, you really only have a real problem with those things with fuel consumption because California is very strict about their fuel consumption and noise and things like that. So riding to California might be a, a more severe problem. Most other states don't seem to have most of those problems at this point, depending on what you want to upgrade, at least for a motorcycle, for cars they do. Well, and you also bring up, I mean, we're assuming the auto manufacturers themselves are playing by the rules. And as we saw with Volkswagen and their settlements, uh, they were manipulating the software unbeknownst to folks. So who gets held liable when you can't even touch the software, but you may know it's glitching in a way it shouldn't be? Well, obviously, at this point, they did get held liable for the lie, or at least the problem they caused by doing that, and it, and it is costing them a tremendous amount of money. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I still think that there's still something to be said for, I bought this car, and if I want to hack it or do something to it, I should be able to do that. But they're looking at it from the standpoint of, I don't want you distributing my software. That might be an option that I can charge for. In some of the cars, that is where the argument is that it, you know you can buy options and add them onto the car, and they're all software options. So if you can hack and unlock the software option, then what happens? Uh, and they can't make an income from that. So they are they are fighting with those kind of things and trying to prevent people from upgrading their cars or doing something that they might have had an option to purchase. Well, exactly. And they're going to try to make as much uh, revenue, and understandably, so that is the nature of the business model. But it it just opens a lot of questions, especially from researchers. And two, there's been times in your court cases that you've worked on or your law enforcement cases where I imagine you needed to get in and find some of that data set or that information from either hard drives, be it a hard drive located in a vehicle or in a computer in somebody's home. How do you handle or how do you approach those situations? Well, so far, at least to date, at least dealing with the individual item and what we're doing to get the data off of it, I haven't had a challenge from any of the vendors or anything about what did I do to get into this device? What did I do to get this data? I mean, I've had a lot of situations from hard drives that have been burned and DVR units that were video and security cameras all the way down to, you know, somebody shot one with a gun. So, and they have to be repaired. Uh, the, the real issue probably is going what, to... What caliber gun did they shoot it with? <laughs> it I, was, mean... I mean, it looked about maybe like a forty-five. It was about that size, and it missed the platter. So as it went through the head head assembly, it destroyed the head assembly. But And I was able to rebuild that and replace it. And that's actually one of the first... That was one of... Uh, like This was like 2002, 2003 that I did this. And it was one of the earlier cases that kind of broke me into doing... 
uh, specialized recovery because the lawyer and the people that I did that for then went on to tell everybody else. And I started getting <laughs> all this law enforcement stuff that was coming to me saying, we need this fixed in this case. And so it kind of grew a big portion of my business and the class that I teach, uh, which is... I say, what's the craziest thing you have seen someone try to do to a hard drive that either worked or didn't? Um, I, I mean, being shot and burned. I mean, those are pretty common events. Thrown in the water, um, run over by a car. Now, of course, run over by a car, especially if it's glass platters, it destroys it. So that's happened. Uh, I mean, they do a lot. You know, fling it out the window while they're driving away from the cops. Um, throw it off of uh, um, an escalator. That was just like a husband and wife, and the wife was pissed, so she threw it off the escalator. Um, so it, I'm it, sure she was justified in her anger. Uh, probably. There was probably a good reason for it is the way I understood it. So, uh, But the, the, you know, it really depends on the drive at that point in time. Some of the ones that are glass bladders, once they fall so far, they will shatter and they will break inside the drive versus uh, older aluminum ones or solid-state drives where we're dealing with a whole other event. But to answer your question, I think the real problem that would be coming up, that there would be a battle about how we get into the device, is really about phones. So phones, because they are doing every every step of the way, Apple especially, is trying to prevent us from getting data from those phones in every way possible. And if we were to you know come up with a good method and publish it, Apple has been pretty... And, Apple's actually pretty big even on the no-fix-your-computer thing as well. That's actually been one of the topics that, you know, Apple has kind of become like the evil giant where they're saying, we don't want you to fix your laptop. And, we did, you, know, you know, we did have the incident with the iPhones before where unauthorized iPhones that were fixed by somebody that when a patch came out, it noticed that the case had been open and that there was a problem with an unauthorized repair and it bricked everybody's phone and then Apple decided they would fix those after a lot of complaints. Well, it's the piecemeal approach. It's the only reason that Apple now fixes those phones or permits it in large part was because people got exemptions or exceptions to the DMCA. That said, where basically the government had to come in and say, no, no, we're going to let this one be okay. Well, that's true in cases, but I think, and it may be true with computers that we can, because there is, there is an exception. There is an ad, added addition to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that was, uh, it's called the Computer Maintenance Competition Assurance Act. And while I don't know a lot of the legal details of it, it, it basically the premise is, is that we know you have to fix a computer and that during the fixing or repairing of the computer that there are these temporary copies that you're going to have to make for something that you own and then is reestablished. And I feel like that really even though people, you know, say a phone, you know, in maybe in Apple's eyes a phone isn't a computer – for all intents and purposes, everything that I believe it is, it is a computer. It's almost identical to a Mac with only some slight exceptions and slight changes, and one of those being encryption. But, uh, but I, think, I think personally I feel like we should be able to fit under these exemptions as a whole. And probably John Deere or you know, the people, the farmers that are fighting this should be looking to try to make uh, an exception that says, you know, fix everything, maintenance you know, Assurance Act. Well, yes, and the DMCA exemption, so it's a list that the Library of Congress 
puts out, and I believe it's every two years, and I apologize, but the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, is one of the organizations that closely tracks these and will get very involved in the rulemaking process. But everything from uh, the car hacking, jailbreaking your cell phones, your tablets, and other portable devices to run third-party software, for example, the security research on cars, those all have to be or each kind of important caveats to the DMCA. But they're up for debate every few years, and if it doesn't make the cut, you're SOL. Right. Yeah. And... It's a real problem with technology trying to keep up with things, and, and this is a lot of the battles that I have in court, is a lot of the ideas that we're trying to deal with are about ownership and where this ownership exists and password protection and whether or not you have rights to privacy and whether or not you own the material that you typed. So there there is a, quite a battle that goes on. Every time I'm in a courtroom, it's a little piece of that comes up. Well, I bet. And we'll get more into the battle once we come back from this commercial break. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer. It's that time of year again. If you suffer from itchy eyes, sneezing, a constant runny nose, sinus headaches, or an increase in asthma symptoms, and you're tired of using allergy medicine, maybe it's time to stop putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Peachtree ENT Center believes in treating the problem instead of masking the symptom. We are pleased to offer an innovative alternative that can free you from this routine. Sublingual immunotherapy is a safe, easy, and effective way to treat allergies to food and environmental allergens for you and your family. Imagine placing drops under your tongue to treat allergies. No shots, no office visits with time off from work, and freedom from needing daily allergy medication. Just think, next year, you can actually enjoy being outdoors. About an hour of your time is all it takes to change the quality of your life. Remember... Peace Street ENT Center is where patient care counts. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, chatting today with Scott Moulton, who, in addition to being a computer forensic expert and a motorcycle enthusiast, uh, Scott, you talking about all these different issues with the right to repair it sounds like really you're going to stick with your classic classic bike and really have no use for some of these some of these uh, changes until you get an exemption for the DMCA right 
Well, I, I don't. I, I really like a motorcycle to be classic in the first place. So I'm not really, uh, I'm not really interested in having my bike take care of everything and do everything for me. From that standpoint, I like a bike to be raw and ride it, you know, as as a normal, ordinary, old school bike. But as far as the other stuff goes, you know, I teach. You know, that's one of the biggest things that I've been doing for over a decade or so is breaking hard drives, fixing hard drives, repairing all the equipment, solid-state drives, and bringing those things back from the dead. And right now, I'm not being challenged on that. Like, I'm not being challenged from a standpoint of, you know, reconstituting firmware and trying to bring this thing back from the dead so far. In a lot of the cases, I'm actually training classes of people who are law enforcement as well. So, you know, they need that type of service, and they need to be able to do this one-off thing and i will tell you because of the types of damage that i'm dealing with it's not even the kind of thing that's like a repeatable event every time whatever these weird things are that happen they happen under certain conditions and certain bugs that kick off and certain things that are done because of certain types of damage or you know you've written so many times to a solid state drive before it starts to just flake out on you so it's not always something that's you know the same stamp that you're doing one after the other it's a it's a training process and a stepping through this process well and you raise an excellent point in that when you're teaching the law enforcement classes i mean one of the things we were alluding to before is you're really having to educate as part of your work as an expert in some of these trials you're having to educate the judge that you're you know the law enforcement how difficult from a starting point is educating law enforcement on what they should be doing or how to do this is there is there a wide technical gap coming into your classes Uh, not these days there once was uh, a decade or so ago the technical people a lot of them were law enforcement who really didn't have a good background in computers that you know they knew a couple of things and they kind of became the computer guy but now i would say you know with the new generation the advancements that have happened a lot of the law enforcement people themselves have a pretty decent background in computers themselves they may misunderstand some things they may have some you know that that, that is a traditional problem with a lot of the materials that if you don't know the history of it it's hard to know how complex and how far we've actually come to this spot so that you understand something clearly and they don't tend to ask a lot of questions about what they don't understand because they don't want anybody else to know what they don't know but i would say that the hardest part of dealing with court cases and all of these technical things is teaching the judge the judges in these cases, while they're trying to be adept and they're trying to understand the computer stuff, they don't really have the background. They don't really, in a lot of cases, have a, a strong, um, you know, they weren't programmers. They didn't start out as a programmer. So you're having to walk them through what that process and what that life is like if you're actually going to testify about it. And how how do you prepare for those conversations? Do you get a gate? Do you have to gauge where, like, how small to break it down to baby step, or is that part of the attorney prep? Um, some of it, depending on the type of case, is the attorney and and the questions that you will get, and you kind of walk through that entire step because we want to make sure they understand most of the time, not just. Uh, what type of life might have gone with this particular item that we're discussing, but 
Um, the emotion, the side that goes with that. And, you know, there's some things, you know, with computer people, as an example, where the only way I can describe it is you feel as one with the computer and you have this kind of innate ability to understand it and feel it. And those kind of things come up in cases a lot and you have to uh, evolve a case while you're discussing it. And that may take eight hours of testifying on the stand to get all those points across to the judge uh, one step at a time in very small chunks of data. But I will tell you that the judge can stop you and ask you questions. It's rare because they usually let the people do their job. But when it does, when it does evolve into a spot where they have a question or they're not getting an answer from the prosecutor or the defense attorney that they want, they will sometimes turn to you. And I have had sidebars. I have been taken in the back and had discussions with the judge about items like that. And it's happened in the courtroom where they've actually just stopped me and said, you know, Mr. Moulton, how how does this work or something? And now, do you feel like it, do you ever have the, was it Matlock Perry Mason moments where you're making a very, uh, you know, a very articulate point where you're like, "Ha And this is the smoking gun, or do you have to try to play it cool? Well, yes, you generally you generally are not hopping up and down and going, "Aha, I, I did this." But there, there, you've read, you've had the ability to read a few of my transcripts, so you know some of the things. And there are a few moments where that does happen. And I had I had one in a recent case where I was testifying about MD5s and. No matter how many times the prosecutor asked me a particular question and I tried to make him understand, eventually I just turned around and I faced the judge and I said, this is how it works and this is how it works forever. And so I literally did that like I'm you know, teaching a class. And it worked very well and she understood it very well. And the prosecutor, I mean, he probably wasn't too happy about that altogether because I basically just kind of turned away from him to let her know what the answer was. Well, you mentioned the MD5. What's that all about? So, or share with the listeners. Well, I, I had a case that is a, a unique case in the fact that the person that had been arrested there was an ongoing trial that had been – he had been arrested 10 years ago. So – and this just came up recently. So the portion that I testified in this hearing was only in January. So it was 10 years ago in 2007 that one of these people got arrested. And for almost seven years or so – we had difficulty getting to the evidence, going to see the evidence. The police would prevent us from seeing this evidence, and there was a lot of discussion and a lot of hearings in the court about getting to this evidence to try to review the evidence to defend our client. And then in the end, it turned out that they had lost the evidence, that they had known for a number of years. Um, and so we, we had this situation in Gwinnett County, Georgia, where the police had some evidence that you know, there there was a server that died. They lost evidence that was on the server, and they didn't have any of the stuff to, that they used to originally write the indictment. And they still had the original hard drives in a safe, but you, ha- you need a second warrant in order to go back and get a copy and start over. And literally, that's what happened. We got through like seven years, five years of them not telling us that they had lost the evidence. They had had a crash with a server and that, you know, they lost 30 cases or more. And in this instance, when we finally found out, they went and got a second warrant. They went back and got copies of the hard drive the way it was in the safe currently, 
but it didn't match. And it, this was a RAID, which means, two. in this case, there was two drives. It was a RAID 0. Two drives were bound together. Both drives had been changed. So it wasn't like one drive had a bad sector, and that's why the MD5s, this hash, did not match. The hash is basically an authentication hash. It You feed a stream of data in, it gives you a hash, and the original hash from 2007 we still knew for both hard drives. And in 2016, when this came up again, the hashes were different for both drives. And since you don't know what has changed on the drive, how can you authenticate this as evidence? And so that's basically what this hearing was about, was mismatched MD5s from evidence that had changed where there was no longer in images that still exists. And the police had, at, at, at some point in time, damaged the drives, damaged the content, damaged the case, and we had a hearing about this moving forward, and we were testifying about these particular items and trying to explain to the judge what a hash is, what this content You can imagine how difficult that, that is for someone who is not technical to have these really deep discussions about what data looks like on a disk. Well, it gets back to your point earlier on how data and software being tangible, intangible, that at the end of the day, it is leaving a mark. Yes, and, and, and you know, the one thing that shows you, you know, I do data recovery, and I have a company that is just a commercial data recovery company, and a lot of the things that you'll notice that you can tell somebody all day long that the pictures that they lost of their children who might have died in a fire are intangible, but to them, they're tangible. They mean something, and they still feel that loss. And that, to me, is, is really exemplifies what the situation is, that you know, losing photos and losing that data is, is something that is tangible to them. Well, and where can folks find out more about your data recovery and some of that information? Well, my primary commercial company that I teach classes and I do the data recovery side and everything from is called My Hard Drive Died. So you can go to myharddrivedied.com. And on that page, you will see everything about my company and all the services we provide. And you can find out about the classes and the upcoming classes that I'm teaching. We're, uh, right now, I have an upcoming class in Atlanta in, uh, in July. And then I have a class in Washington, D.C. in um, September currently. So if you're interested in those classes, um, I had one in L.A., but it's already sold out. So... If you're interested in those classes, you might want to go and sign up before they sell out. Uh, usually my Washington, D.C. class does sell out pretty quickly. It's mostly a technical. Uh, it's not just law enforcement. It is usually a class for anyone who wants to learn data recovery, run it as a business, or they want to add to their IT business on how to do these items. But I am also teaching lawyers and starting to go down an entirely different path by trying to teach lawyers in a uh, in a setting that would be specific to them for criminal defense and things like that. So uh, feel free to contact me, and we'll set something up. Well, and are you also working on the legislative side at the state and local level or participating in some of those conversations in D.C. when you're going to be out there teaching your class? 
Uh, generally, I do not. I only seem to get involved in them if there is a case that surrounds that, such as, like I mentioned in Colorado, about whether or not we're dealing with tangible and intangible, which might change tax law and things like that. But I, I'm generally not normally involved in a lot of the other side of laying down the, the legwork for those kind of things. I'm not, I haven't been invited. I'd be happy to handle some of those things if people find it interesting and I need to be invited for those things. I think you do. I mean, if you can break it down into such digestible, understandable bites sized pieces that you've got a judge understanding the MD5 hashes, I'd say that's a talent that hopefully is not going to go to waste. I'd be happy to do it if uh, I, I'm not sure that I have a lot of time to actively try to go hunt one down to be involved with. But if there was a reason that somebody wanted to contact me or they had a reason, a resource that go. is necessary, I'd be happy to do it. There you go. Well, we will have to find that for you. But thank you to Scott Moulton for joining us. Thank you to America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz. Catch us next week or on iTunes. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.